The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello, he was born Eric Arthur Blair in 1903, the son of a British official working in the Indian Civil Service and a French woman who was the daughter of an unsuccessful teak merchant in what was then called Burma. Their family was what Eric would later call the landless gentry, or lower middle class, people who had greater claims on social status than their income would allow. Impoverished snobbery is another way of putting it. After the family returned to England, Eric went on a scholarship to a preparatory boarding school on the Sussex coast, but it was another region of England, a river that runs from Ipswich to the North Sea, that inspired his famous pseudonym. That river was called the River Orwell, and the man, Eric Arthur Blair, became George Orwell, author, whose famous works include essays like Politics and the English Language and Shooting an Elephant, the allegorical novel Animal Farm from 1945, and of course, the anti-utopian novel Warning the World of Totalitarianism, 1984. Who was George Orwell? What makes him so great? We'll be joined by Mike Palindrome for a celebration of this titan of the 20th century, today on The History of Literature. Okay, here we go. Welcome to the podcast, everyone. I'm Jack Wilson, your host. George Orwell, what a writer. He's kind of alone in literature. There's no one quite like him, and that seems appropriate, since much of his life seems to have been one of solitude. There's a great picture of him with a baby, laughing, and he was married, and he had friends and everything, but his childhood was filled with loneliness. He was often described as morose, withdrawn, eccentric, undeniably brilliant, but not necessarily a happy fellow. He could be happy. He could write about simple pleasures, and I treasure that picture of him with that baby where he's genuinely happy. He got to do what he wanted to do, write. But he was also a man of conscience, and he had the weight of the world on his shoulders. He did something with that weight and with his talents. He's highly readable, which took some work more difficult than it sounds or than it, he makes it appear. But now I'm getting a little ahead of myself. So let's do this. We'll hear a listener email, then a quick biographical sketch of Mr. Orwell, and then we'll have our old friend Mike Palindrome, the president of the Literature Supporters Club, who's here to join us for a draft of 10 Great Things About Orwell. Okay, today's email comes from Agnes, subject, Emptying My Mind. Hello, Jack. I am not one who usually sends emails to strangers or people doing podcasts, but I was listening to an episode of the History of Literature where you were talking about emails you had been sent, and I could not stop thinking about what I would write. I have not been a long-time listener to your show, but I've listened to a lot of episodes concerning ancient Greece, Rome, and the Middle Ages. The reason for this is that I recently started uni and I'm doing literary studies and creative writing in Sweden. I have always loved reading and writing, but never really dared to touch the classics for fear of not understanding or being disappointed by what I found. I am happy to say that it has not been so yet. Sure, Homer's works and the Aeneid were 
difficult to get into, but once I got past the first few sentences, a whole world opened. And then to hear someone else, in this case you, talk about them and explain them has given me a deeper understanding and relation to these books. Have they changed my life? No, I would not say so but they have made me interested to keep reading classics and try to picture the people who wrote them. What I have loved to read most so far are Medea, King Oedipus, Sappho's Poems, Petrarca, and the Poetic Edda. These are texts or authors that have touched something in me and that I will certainly return to in the future. So all in all, I just wanted to thank you for sharing this podcast and your thoughts with the world and let you know that you are helping a student in cold little Sweden. Thank you so much, Agnes. Well, Agnes, thank you for reaching out. I love these emails. I love the part where you say that the books haven't changed your life. That's so excellent. It's so honest. But how do you know? (laughs) But then how do we know that about anything? I guess I just ate two clementines. Did those change my life? I wouldn't say so, necessarily. Did reading George Orwell change my life? I feel like it did. I feel like it did. I feel like reading 1984 opened my mind in a way and knowing what people were talking about when they referred to it or referred to Big Brother. I feel like that opened some new doors. I remember vividly that feeling of first reading 1984 and thinking that it described a world that I knew was possible because already I had seen what power does to people, power and the desire for control. And I knew that there were madmen in the world who would carry it out. Maybe I wouldn't live under it ever, but maybe I would. And that feeling of profound horror stuck with me. I studied dystopian novels in college for a while, utopias and dystopias, I guess it was. And sometimes I chuckled at the dystopias, but not 1984. That one hit me with great force. And then I had a kind of hero worship for Orwell, the writer, and his prose style that probably changed my life a bit, too. I've certainly read enough of his works. So, Agnes, maybe it's too soon to tell whether the literature you're reading now will end up changing your life. But maybe you're right, and it hasn't, and it won't. But that's okay, too. I just love picturing you there in cold little Sweden, which I think of as a wonderful place to read. Those long summer nights, perfect for reading. Those dark winter nights, perfect for reading. I don't take a lot of baths these days. I've converted to showers almost completely. But in the old days, I used to take a lot of them. The kind where you keep renewing the hot water. There was nothing better than cracking open a window on a cold day so you'd get a little coolness coming in while your body soaks in the hot steam and you read a little something-something. Oh, man. So good. Read a little Hemingway. Read a little Orwell. Read some Elizabeth Bishop. Read Middlemarch or Gabriel Garcia Marquez. Then, when you start getting a little cold, you add some more hot water. Or if you have a hot tub or a jacuzzi or hot springs nearby, I guess that's even better. Wow. (laughs) Off the track of George Orwell here. (laughs) But that's okay. Thank you, Agnes, for that lovely email. And good luck to you at university. So, we told you a little about Orwell's early life. His first book was Down and Out in Paris and London, which was published when he was 28 under his pseudonym, George Orwell. By then, he had finished school, attending two prestigious schools on scholarship, and where he was 
taught by Aldous Huxley, among others. Aldous Huxley, there's something poetic about that coincidence, as Huxley's Brave New World is often paired with 1984. We'll probably have to do an episode on Brave New World at some point. Orwell had, it's one of Mike's favorites, I think. A lot of these are Mike's favorites. (laughs) He's got a lot of favorites. Orwell had also worked in the British Empire in Burma, which he did instead of going to university. He started feeling uneasy about the British Empire during these years, about colonialism and about power, one might say, and he responded by going full vagabond. Instead of being the symbol of imperialist Britain, as he was when he was a police officer in Burma, he returned to England, he put on old clothes, and went to live in cheap lodging houses among the working class and the out-of-work. He tramped around England with vagrants, He went to work in the hop fields. He went to Paris and lived in the slums and worked as a dishwasher. The result, when he sat down to write about these experiences, was Down and Out in Paris and London, a book that still holds up. For the next few years, he came out with about a novel a year, Burmese Days, A Clergyman's Daughter, and Keep the Aspidistra Flying. He was writing essays, too, and he was writing about class, writing about justice, or maybe I should say injustice, and he headed to the Spanish Civil War to view the politics and the conflict up close, report on it, and fight for the Republicans. His book, Homage to Catalonia, is one of his best. And then it was World War II, and he came into full flower as a thinker, a writer, and a man. He was worried about fascism and war and what the future was going to hold for all of us. His caution, or should I say his vivid depiction of that world has given us phrases like Big Brother and Newspeak and Doublethink. And of course, when we see these concepts in action, we now call them Orwellian. In his 40s, he contracted tuberculosis, so he went to live in the Hebrides, where he bought a house in the middle of nowhere so he could finish his masterpiece, 1984. He was in and out of the hospitals, racing to finish the novel that was also kind of killing him. It was the disease, of course, but the effort it took to write this novel was a drain on his waning strength. And he did complete it, fortunately for the world, but he died soon after in a London hospital, not yet 47 years old. Christopher Hitchens wrote about Orwell's stubborn insistence on facing the brute facts of human existence, even when they are discomforting or disquieting, and even when they implicate oneself. Hitchens said, quote, By declining to lie even as far as possible to himself, and by his determination to seek elusive but verifiable truth, Orwell showed how much can be accomplished by an individual who unites the qualities of intellectual honesty and moral courage. End quote. Mike Palindrome joins us for more on George Orwell after this. Hey, grown-ups, the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast. And those plans 
are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, joining me now is our old friend Mike Palindrome, the president of the Literature Supporters Club, who has been a fan of George Orwell for many, many years. Mike, welcome back to the History of Literature. Thanks, Jack. How are you? Good. So, Mike, I know you keep track of the books you've read. I don't know if you checked your records, but do you remember the first George Orwell book you ever read? Oof. I'm sure I was assigned uh, Animal Farm. Yeah, in junior high school or high school. Yeah, and then also assigned 1984. Mm, yeah, I read that in high school, 1984, but I remember being aware of it in late 1983. I can remember it being a big deal at that time. There was like a weekly magazine that came to our school, and it had 1984 on the cover. Are we ready for Big Brother? And what mm -hmm. did George Orwell get right? And it was kind of in the atmosphere when we were around that age. Yeah, but I think the first Orwell that I really got into was um, Homage to Catalonia. Mm, yeah, right. Which is, a, which is a funny entrance entry point yeah. for Orwell, because I, I think most people kind of get into him through um, his incredible essays. Mm, mm -hmm. Yeah, let's not give too much away about that since we're going to be doing a draft here. But I can remember also you and I read the novels in our 20s. I remember talking about that with you. Let's save that as well. But I, I don't think I read Animal Farm until after college. For some reason, I didn't have that assigned to me. But my kids have read it. They've they've had it assigned. It's still kind of a staple yeah. of, of that uh, middle school or high school curriculum. You know, I, I, I was kind of a, a delinquent reader. And mm -hmm. I, I, I confess, I, I may have never finished Animal Farm. <laughs> <laughs> so. Okay, here's something else I found. In 2008, the Times of London ranked George Orwell second among the 50 greatest British writers since 1945. Wow, who was so, number one? Well, can you guess? British writers. Um, Since 1945, between 1945 and 2008, George Orwell, was, George Orwell was number two. Number one was, it sounds like you're opening a beer. Graham Greene. Graham <laughs> Greene. Was, was it? Uh, I'm looking at the list. He was not in the... Really? Not in the top 35. Wow. Huh. I guess they figured he is uh, pre-World War II, I guess. But man, uh -huh. I wouldn't have. I would have thought he'd be in there, but he's not. 
I don't know who's number one. Philip Larkin. Whoa. That's yeah. a surprise. Yeah, above George Orwell. Yeah. So number three was William Golding. And then four was Ted Hughes. Five was Doris Lessing. Six was Tolkien. Seven, or Tolkien, I guess I should say. Seven was Naipaul. Eight, Muriel Spark. Nine, Kingsley Amos. And ten, Angela Carter. Some notables. I mean, Salman Rushdie was 13. Martin Amos was 19. Uh, Anthony Powell, one of our favorites, was 20. Mm-hmm. Uh, Penelope Fitzgerald down there at 23. But George Orwell, number two, I mean, I think most people would have had him in the top five. He's uh, he's a giant yeah, I would. I I mean, I probably would have had him above uh, Philip Larkin. Certainly. Mm, yeah, uh, Ian McEwen, number thirty-five. And who was your other guy, Julian Barnes? I was looking him up. He's not in here. He uh, might, might have been in the top fifty. I only jotted down the top thirty-five, and then I got tired. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we are going to do a draft of George Orwell. Let's see if we can figure out why he was the second among the. 50 greatest British writers since 1945, or you uh, maybe would have had him even first. But let's let's pick a draft. We'll do five picks each, and I will let you take the first pick. Well, that's I, I got to go with class for mm. the first one. Um, yeah, class consciousness and, or class uh, descriptions of class or the that he was sticking up for the working class. I guess, the, yeah, his obsession with class. Mm-hmm. And now um, I kind of forgotten how uh bougie he was you know he he had gone to eaton mm-hmm. and um his family had very high social status despite not having as much money as his previous the previous generations and his family had had right there's a great biography by jeffrey myers called uh, orwell wintry conscience of a generation and i was i was reading about the way um, when he was younger, he would turn to playmates and tell them, I can't play with you because you're common. Mm. Wow. So, yeah, so he had really, you know, been raised by what they call the tw- the two pillars of Victorian England, the empire and the church. Mm. And he went to Eton, and, and the way he rebelled against it, I thought was just fascinating to see his career, you know, the writing about the road to Wigham P- Pier and, you know. Mm-hmm. Certainly, all the the symbolism in Animal Farm and 1984, and I just think you know, I wish there were writers like him today, who would engage class and you know, in 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 a in a real narrative, with narrative weight, rather than you know, picking and choosing and saying like, well, this is this person's a struggling limo driver, and you know, this person has yeah. a business, but you know, isn't making it. There, there was something so organic about the way he he developed class, and then one of my favorite books, Down and Out in London and Paris, is is all about sort of the underclass, the mm-hmm. working class. Yep. Right. So let me take my pick because I think it's going to dovetail into this. Before I say too much, I'll step all over my pick. So my first <laughs> pick was uh, that he was shot in the throat. That uh, he went to he went to fight in the Spanish Civil War, where he fought for the Republicans and developed his dread of communism. And it was always like the central tension in his work: the balance between journalism or reporting or even writing fiction on one hand, and then action and making a difference on the other. And here's a passage that I jotted down from Why I Write. 
And he says, quote, my starting point is always a feeling of partisanship, a sense of injustice. When I sit down to write a book, I do not say to myself, I am going to produce a work of art. I write it because there is some lie that I want to expose, some fact to which I want to draw attention, and my initial concern is to get a hearing. But I could not do the work of writing a book or even a long magazine article if it were not also an aesthetic experience, end quote. And he had this sort of balance where he wasn't just a... Uh, you know, he he wasn't dogmatic or uh, just preachy. Sometimes it gets a little bit that way. But for the most part, he really struck this balance between his artistic sense and his devotion to causes, to righting the wrongs and, and pointing out hypocrisy and correcting injustices. And yet his balance between that and, and his art or his at least his artistic ambition, which I always admired that about him, that he, that he, it always feels like he was engaged, that he cared about what he was writing about, that it mattered. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think, you know, too often writers today, and this is something that Franzen talks about is that, you know, what, what are the important issues that novelists should be grappling with today? Yeah. And he says, perhaps, you know, the, the the problem with fiction is the problem with with the the background of a lot of uh, writers today that they they are not they're so sheltered mm-hmm. from from what's going on in the world yeah um and the, yeah there's something about it, with Orwell's writing you, you feel like he's writing it with because he feels compelled to right. And just like he was driven to go to the Spanish Civil War. So here's the story of how he got shot in the throat. He he loved literature, but he was always this little guy, right? This outsider and this champion against injustice. So he signed up for the Spanish Civil War to make a difference. And he met up on his way there. He met up with Henry Miller in Paris to have dinner. And Miller said, you doing this out of a sense of obligation or guilt was sheer stupidity. Mm-hmm. Uh, but anyway... Orwell kept going. He arrived in Barcelona and said, I've come to fight against fascism. (laughs) And so they sent him off to the mountains where he was shocked by the lack of supplies that the troops had. There was a lot of there was always this journalist in him. He wanted to to see the world and share what he saw, you know, and and uh, he he was often shocked by what he saw, whether it was in the coal mines or whether it was seeing the hospital situation or in this case, it was the lack of supplies that the troops had. Somehow he poisoned his hand, and he had to go to the hospital where the staff stole most of his possessions. So from there, he returned to the front and chased an enemy soldier with a bayonet during a night attack, and he bombed some enemy rifle positions. So he really was seeing action, and he was apparently 6'2". He was quite tall, and they told him not to stand up in the trenches, but he did anyway for some reason, and a sniper shot him through the throat. He barely survived. Blood was pouring from his mouth, and he was taken away on a stretcher, and he couldn't talk for a while, and that wow. pretty much ended his career as a soldier. From then on, he was fighting against fascism with his pen. But what he saw in the Spanish Civil War really mm-hmm. uh, prepared him for Stalinism. And even when a lot of people were still sympathetic to the communist cause and were uh, sympathetic to Stalin, who, of course, had been an ally during World War II, so it's not outrageous, 
uh, he saw it right away as totalitarianism, and it came out of his experience from the Spanish Civil War. And he said, no one who was in Barcelona then or for months later will forget the horrible atmosphere produced by fear, suspicion, hatred, censored newspapers, crammed jails, enormous food queues, and prowling gangs of armed men. And I think that was uh, what helped him see the truth about the Soviet Union before, long before others did. Yeah, I mean, I think, you, you know, that getting shot in the throat, I, I, your pick, I, I'll, um, I, I had further down his maleness mm. and toughness, so I'll just yeah. add that to your pick. I, yeah, I mean, I think his, he, you know, it was a smart kind of toughness, his, mm-hmm. like you're saying, his skepticism of, you know, um, the left and yeah. the splintering of the Spanish left. I mean, and the, his, he was so well-informed being able to differentiate between Stalinism versus the Trotskyites. And it's, you know, but just going off to fight a war, I mean, it's, yeah, it's legend. It's leg- legendary. I mean, it's just kind of hard to imagine like Jeffrey Eugenides, right. like going off to fight a war. <laughs> Yeah, he was so, you're right, he was masculine in a kind of flinty way. He was sort of, he was stubborn and he was proud, but he was he was brave and courageous too, it seems like. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, I think so, you know, our, our draft, it, it, we're going to have a lot of overlap because mm-hmm. there was, you know, he never went through different periods. It's almost like he emerged like fully formed. Yeah. And he just, he applied the same aesthetic, the same, you know, all the other things we're going to talk about. It's like he applied himself to different problems at different points in his career. I always think of him as an example of how uh, an incredible education and exposure to the upper class when used for good Mm. could produce someone like Orwell. When you're intolerant of any hypocrisy. Yeah, when you insist on things being as they say, and you insist on analyzing whatever you're being told for its utmost truth, and not just saying, "Well, that's kind of a you know, that's a polite fiction," or "There's a gentleman's agreement about this," or anything that's kind of like, "Well, why would I rock the boat? These are my friends." You know, he he, it's like he went out of his way to forego all of that, and he ends up with this. Uh, sometimes ruthless honesty about the class that he came from. It, it's fascinating, too, because he says that Eaton produced a boy himself, uh, a character who hates intellectuality and worships games, is insensitive and physically courageous, questions nothing, and has no inner life. Mm. It's almost like he yeah. took the best of Eaton, avoided, sidestepped um, this trap, and became, you know, someone different than his 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 schoolmates. I mean, he 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 hated his time at Eton, um, but you can't help thinking like he, he must have gotten such an exceptional education there. Yeah. Okay. What's your number two? So my number two was um, his compassion, and mm, I, mm-hmm. I I think the version of homage to Catalonia I have it it has an introduction by Lionel Trilling, which is terrific, and he says that. Orwell was not merely a writer, he was a figure, and he was involved in this, the world stage. Mm-hmm. And he goes on to say that he had the virtue of not being a genius. 
Um, we admire geniuses. We love them, but they discourage us. Mm. Orwell doesn't. Mm. Right. As educated as Orwell was, something about the everyman about him and his things like, you know, when he went to Burma, his horror at the treatment of prisoners, um, his horror at the treatment of of people who work low-level jobs and were tramping. There's just like this incredible curiosity he has to try to figure out how did the, these people get this way instead of just, you know, I, I think of like contrast him with like Evelyn Waugh, who is just brilliant, but never like never really got down past his mantle, his upper class mantle. Yeah. And right. it's, it's, he kept churning out the same novels, which I love. <laughs> um, and I've reread, but it's, you look at someone like Orwell and you think like Evelyn Waugh is a child and Orwell is an adult. Yeah. yeah. Right. Uh, well, that feeds into my number two, I think, which is the way that he cared about words and language. And I'm going to drag in here the, uh, the essay Politics and the English Language, mm-hmm. which is such a great essay. It's so vivid. It's, it could use some freshening up, but only because of the examples. They're not the examples we would use today when he's talking about the cliches or the political jargon. And today we might talk about battles we're having over words like rioters versus protesters or defund the police and what that means and what that's come to mean and and how it's been distorted. We had words like death panels in the past. You remember when that was part of the healthcare debate when it was a was sort of a slur. Orwell saw all of this that once you see the effect of these words and when you read Orwell's essay, it's really persuasive. It's it's kind of like a before and after, I feel like when before I read that essay and after I read that essay and I saw that with my students when I used to teach it mm-hmm. that it would just open their eyes to the way that using hackneyed phrases and especially politically charged words were just kind of a shorthand that wasn't it wasn't doing the work that needed to be done in order to successfully persuade people of things. He's got six rules for writers in the uh, politics in the English language. Number one, never use a metaphor, simile, or other figure of speech, which you are used to seeing in print. Number two, never use a long word where a short one will do. Three, (laughs) if it's possible to cut a word out, always cut it out. Four, never use the passive where you can use the active. Five, never use a foreign phrase, a scientific word, or a jargon word if you can think of an everyday English equivalent. And six, break any of these rules sooner than say anything outright barbarous. Uh, it's such a great rule of thumb. And I think that is one of the, when you said it's it's uh, like genius can be discouraging, his striving so hard to make his prose yeah. style plain and straightforward and honest and sincere and accessible and all of those things give us this sense of that he could be like a neighbor. He could be your next door neighbor who runs over with a bucket of water when your house is on fire or something. You know, he'd be like the perfect next-door neighbor. You can't imagine living next door to Tolstoy. You think of him living on some mountain somewhere or something that <laughs> would be, you know, inaccessible. Or he, he'd he be on his estate so far away from your house that you'd have to, you know, walk for an hour to down his driveway to get to his house or something. But Orwell seems like he could live right next door to me. Here's a, a description he wrote of getting the words right 
And again, this comes from his essay, Why I Write. And he says, writing a book is a horrible, exhausting struggle, like a <laughs> long bout of some painful illness. One would never undertake such a thing if one were not driven by some demon whom one can neither resist nor understand. For all one knows, that demon is the same instinct that makes a baby squall for attention. And yet, it is also true that one can write nothing readable unless one constantly struggles to efface one's personality. Good prose is like a window pane. End <laughs> quote. That's such a perfect uh, description of how his prose is to read. It's it's must be some of the most readable prose ever written in English. Yeah, I mean, that's... You know, my next pick was is, you know, basically that that his uh, his readability and accessibility. Mm. Mm -hmm. uh, surprisingly, his sense of humor. I think Animal Farm is hilarious. Yeah, just the idea, the concept of it. You know, that kind of like high concept fiction. I'm not sure who else attempted that at that time. I mean, it it, it was interesting because I was reading that when he tried to sell Animal Farm, it was originally rejected by publishers. Dial Press in New York said that it was impossible to sell animal stories in the USA, <laughs> <laughs> which seems to have just entirely missed the point of uh, yeah. of that no of that novel. And yeah, I just think, you know, it reads like reportage sometimes. Sometimes it reads like essay, his fiction. It, it, he sold fabulously well. Uh, the Road to Wiggum Pear sold 44,000 copies. Mm. So he was a very popular writer. I, I, I just think it's, uh, it, it's an incredible accomplishment to write what you want to write and to have people and to sell sell the books and have people read them. I mean, it, you know, uh, people who are trying to become more commercial to sell books, like he didn't have to do any of that. Yeah. Well, since we're talking about uh, books that sold well, I will take my third pick, which is 1984. Uh, just the achievement of 1984 is pretty incredible. It introduced all these words and concepts like newspeak and double think and Clock striking 13 and room 101 where you live out your worst fears and Big Brother. I mean, Big Brother is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's completely entered into our vocabulary. The whole concept of gaslighting is in there, though it's not called that. But we live through that now, these past few years, where you're being told that you can't trust your own eyes and fake news and the way that lies upon lies and lies will exhaust the citizen and, and until the citizen says there is no truth, the truth is not discernible, and the politicians say you just need to rely on us for the truth, just on, or me. You know, Mussolini said, the truth is people are tired of making decisions. <laughs> and or Orwell said, well, what if this was really put into place with perpetual wars to make people afraid and a surveillance state to make people afraid of dissent? And we all said in, in 1984 that it didn't come to pass because Orwell wrote about it. I remember people saying that, oh, we're not living through 1984 because Orwell cautioned us. And, and when the wall fell, we all said, see, it's not sustainable. Even the Soviet Union fell. It can't hold. And now I, I look at it a little differently. I think of it as more like a constant struggle that we could lapse into it at any time, that the warning is still fresh because we're vulnerable, that people are always vulnerable to power like this. And and maybe the 
1984. The reason why it didn't happen by 1984 was the technology was just premature and maybe we're still headed down that path and it's it's still around the corner. Yeah, I mean, predictive powers was on my list. I think, uh, mm. you know, yeah. 1984, Animal, Animal Farm, Amish to Catalonia, the whole sweep of nonfiction memoir, you know, I think Down and Out in London and Paris is such a teachable book. Um, I think he he really saw like the 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 potential of fiction plus something else. Yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, it's a great moment for dystopia. It's a great achievement. It's sort of the great 20th century example of a dystopic novel. It's literary and it's, it seems scientific, and it's that combination of aesthetics and action again. It's the sort of book that Orwell was born to write. Okay, so that's my number three. Why don't we take a quick break and we'll come back with the rest of our draft of great things about George Orwell. Okay, we're back. Mike, what did you have for number four? Uh, I had his Englishness. Mm, Yeah. uh, (laughs) You know, to me, he's... He's more English than so many other writers. I, I, I love his keeping of seeing himself in the line of English tradition. Like mm-hmm. his essay, he has an essay on Charles Dickens, and the opening line is: "Dickens is one of those writers who are well worth stealing." Mm. It's just, I mean, just great knowledge of, you know, fellow English writers, and also such a freshness to the to his essays and the way he looks at them. After I read him, I started to read more Brits. Yeah, right. He, he kind of, kind of convinced me that it wasn't all about like landed gentry and yeah, you know, shooting ducks and. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I I guess I had this image of of British literature as like you know Sir Walter Scott and you know yeah. Right, right. Well, and that he was a guy, you know, a guy's guy. That he was, he, he kind of spoke to us in that way. When you're 18, 19, 20, and you're looking, Hemingway was a little bit like this too, that you're looking for someone who is making a their mark on the world. And you have Orwell as this example of, oh, wow, he wrote this book in 1984 that, that changed politics. Not just, yeah. it wasn't just uh, in a library somewhere, and it wasn't just uh, the kind of, poetry that lovers might read to one another and then be a little embarrassed about it later. This was like a real, you know, red-blooded book. And then to see that Orwell said, you know, the writers I care about most and never grow tired of are Shakespeare, Swift, Fielding, Dickens, Charles Reed, Flaubert, and among modern writers, James Joyce, T.S. Eliot, and D.H. Lawrence. And suddenly it's like, oh, wow, I guess those guys are okay. Orwell approves. You know, or yeah. if, if he's reading them, there must be something worth getting out of them because he doesn't seem like a guy who would waste his time. <laughs> this is funny. This is from the same passage, I think, uh-huh. uh, where you had mentioned Evelyn Waugh before. I mean, he liked Arthur Kessler. He liked Jack London and, and Emerson, Graham Greene, Melville, Henry Miller, Twain, and Smollett. And he said, Evelyn Waugh was about as good a novelist as one can be, i.e., as novelists go today, while holding untenable positions. <laughs> <laughs> he has these different gears where he is very you know, almost professorial, and then he just kind of unleashes, uh, uh, attacks 
And I just, you know, I love the shifts the way he, in his essays in particular, like in uh, Shooting an Elephant, it begins, uh, in Mool, Maine, in Lower Burma, I was hated by large numbers of people. The only time in my life that I have been important enough for this to happen to me. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, let me take my number four because it was going to be his anti-colonialism mainly uh, yeah. from Shooting an Elephant and A Hanging, which are two brilliant essays. Uh, Orwell was born in India, and he went to school in England. Then he went back to Burma to work as a policeman for the British Empire in the 1920s, which he did for five and a half years. In 1931, he wrote A Hanging, which has this beautiful passage. As the ex I mean, it's a haunting passage, too. As the executioners walk the man to the spot where he will be killed, and the prisoner steps aside to avoid a rain puddle. And Orwell just can't get over that that this guy, you know, he says, until that moment, I had never realized what it means to destroy a healthy, conscious man. When I saw the prisoner step aside to avoid the puddle, I saw the mystery, the unspeakable wrongness of cutting a life short when it is in full tide. This man was not dying. He was alive just as we are alive. And he talks about just the, that his nails were still growing and that his skin was renewing itself and all of the organs of his body were working, toiling away, even though he was doomed to die and and orwell just describes what's going through his mind as the the man is is headed for the gallows uh and then when he's actually being hanged it's a remarkable essay of empathy and he says he and we were a party of men walking together seeing hearing feeling understanding the same world and in two minutes with a sudden snap one of us would be gone one mind less one world less and then, uh, yeah, isn't that great? And then in the in 1936, he wrote Shooting an Elephant, which is one of the best anti-colonialist essays I've ever read, where the elephant, an elephant has killed a villager and they come to get him, the police officer who already is uneasy about his mm -hmm. role in the empire. He's a symbol of imperial power. But he makes the point that most of what he's doing is futile. And he's trying hard not to be exposed and not to be laughed at. And he said, the, uh, the crowd would laugh at me and my whole life, every white man's life in the East was one long struggle not to be laughed at. Uh, wow. which, if anyone hasn't read Shooting an Elephant, uh, it's worth reading. It's a really, um, uh, it's, it's quite a, a strong essay for 1936. And I can't help thinking that it played a large part in the, willingness of the british public to accept the fall of the empire you know in the years after world war ii yeah i mean the emotional moments like that i mean it makes me think of uh reminds me of in down and out in london and paris where he um i mean he tramped on and off for four years but before he wrote down and out he um lived in uh, he lived on the streets and in uh shelters for i think like six months or so um and he, he he was honest and said that he always had the fallback he could he had the money to you know go to a hotel if he needed to for a night to wash up and stuff but right. he said what struck him as he met fellow men were was the loneliness mm. and yeah. it's such a small moment in the the novel but it, it you know it really rings true that forget about not seeing the homeless as humans, but just trying to imagine each day 
completely alone and people cringing and you know turning away when they see you yeah to me that's it really is my favorite work of his just because you get the kind of the the hanging out camaraderie with the working class in paris and then you get the tramps and the shelters in london and it's uh two worlds he just immersed himself in yeah and it's kind of like you know a book like the sun also rises where it kind of makes you want to go hang out in paris and and travel through europe and everything but it really is kind of a tourist version i know he's he's uh immerses himself hemingway immerses himself in fishing and and Pamplona and, you know, the the things that make it seem like he's more integrated into it. But it's mm-hmm. it's really a kind of bon vivant's view, uh, even though he's he's not living, you know, completely wealthily. But uh, you know what I mean? Orwell is yeah. a, is totally different. Orwell is kind of like he's doing it in a way that seems sort of admirable, even though he's an observer He's not pretending right. to be an insider, but he's trying to find out what life is like, not just for the museum goers and the cafe uh, dwellers, yeah. but the the working people and the servants and the people who might be overlooked and, and ignored and, and just some of the the people who have the hardest time of it. I, I thought of um, Nickel and Dimed, mm. you know, yeah. because... I don't know if people have read that, but I I love I I just read that a couple of years ago and yeah. I, I loved it. And you know, Barbara Ehrenreich, a right. sociologist, took low paying jobs, I think, for a year and right. tried to live. She worked in a hotel that. and she worked yeah. in a waitress as a waitress. But she, but she had the money in case I think there were a couple of times where um she had to pay for like a, a doctor checkup or something like that. And she mm. you know, she obviously had the savings to do that, but you know, I think of Orwell a lot. I, I just saw a T-shirt for sale, and it said lower, upper, middle class. Mm. And I, I was like, that's Orwell. And, I, of course, I looked it up. It's from Keep the Aspidistra Flying. <laughs> <laughs> there, right. There's a joke that I'm part of the lower, upper, middle class. Yeah. Um, so right. I was thinking, like, I mean, is he the most influential writer ever? You know, uh, mm. obviously 1984 and all the future speak and stuff yeah yeah and big brother uh and and his essays on writing yeah he's certainly uh someone who has been taught quite a bit that's the other thing i mean i think there's between a hanging shooting an elephant animal farm 1984 uh seems like i'm forgetting one other but i mean those are uh in the english-speaking world those are Pretty commonly assigned in one type of course or another. I, as a kid, though, I always felt weird that I couldn't call him Eric. Eric Blair. Eric Blair. Yeah. <laughs> it just seems like you become so famous and nobody knows your real name. Yeah. Just, I don't know the origin behind why he picked George Orwell. Oh, I knew that at one time. Maybe I'll include that in the introduction so the reader, okay. the listeners won't okay. wonder. So uh, the the essay that I missed was Politics in the English Language, of course. Oh, uh, yeah. That one's a, a, a staple. Did you do your number five yet? I don't I don't know if I ha- really have a number five that okay. we haven't covered already. I, mean, okay. I, I was going to say, if, if people are looking to read something after they've read Down and Out, I love Keep the Espedistra Flying. Mm, yeah, um, I had his novels at number eight. I mean, they all have this 
lonely, yeah. withdrawn, eccentric protagonist, kind of like Orwell himself, probably still angry about his experiences at school. Coming up for air has some nostalgia to it. Burmese days. They're all, uh, I don't know how well they hold up. I'm a little surprised to hear you say that you love Keep the Espedistra Flying because I find his novels, other than 1984, to uh-huh. be a little a little dry and a little... Somehow they're sort of squeezed... The life is squeezed out of them in a way that I think uh, uh, is not a great read for me. I've, I've read Keep the Espedistra Flying twice and I've seen the movie. <laughs> so. <laughs> but I, 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 I don't recommend... Uh, I, I, I I wouldn't rush out to read Burmese Days. Yeah. <laughs> I I like Wigam P- w- w- the Road to Wigam Pier. I think that's uh that's the coal mines one, right? Yeah, but I don't think that's yeah. a novel. I oh, think, it's not? I think that's like Down novel. and Out in Paris and London. I think that's more of his uh, okay. the the immersion technique of his gonzo journalism or but yeah, yeah. that's the one about mining. Yeah. Okay. So I I think that rounds things out. My number five was going to be his kind of casual essays and and his criticism, but we've already talked about that with his love for Dickens and his Englishness. He has a really nice little essay about the English pub that's kind of fun, and it just he's one of those writers where his prose will be so enjoyable, and he's such a good companion. That I find yeah. myself reading essays of his, even on subjects I'm not necessarily all that interested in, just because I know uh, he'll he'll tell me something kind of interesting and unusual about it, and I'll be uh, I won't be distracted by his ego or or you know, shoddy writing or anything like that. So you, you know, maybe he 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 would be pleased by the the birth of the rebirth of the essay. I feel like in mm. the past few years they've been just uh, a bunch of um, essay collections published. I've spent the last uh, few months reading all the essays of Alyssa Gabbert, uh, a poet who just, she has a collection called The Unreality of Memory mm-hmm. and a collection called The Word Pretty. And it it's kind of like she has read all the newspapers in the world and all the magazines in the world and p- picked and chosen the good tidbits. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm so thankful to her and she's put them together in organized essays but it reminds me a little bit of Orwell because they're so readable like one of them mm. starts off by saying that she um, found out there's a there's a landmass near the Canary Islands and it's precarious so if it slips it will cause a tsunami that mm. will flood 16 miles of the east coast mm. Within five hours. So when she moved to Boston, she was told this by a geologist. And she said she worried all night, worried all weekend. (laughs) And then she lived in Boston for 10 years and kind of forgot about it. (laughs) And I was like, this, you know, to me, this, it kind of reminds me a little bit of Orwell's style, you know? Right. Right. That it's, it's matter of fact and plain spoken. And let's, let's look the potential dangers straight in the eye but let's also remember that we're human beings who are looking at these things yeah i mean i think, I think it's a hard, much harder to, to do than, than than it seems i think you know i've read i've started to read plenty of essays where i just think like i think they they gave up like they started to do something and then they sort of said like well let me just finish it up yeah 
Right. And Gladwell, Malcolm Gladwell, who I like a lot, he said that his early essays, he literally would take one topic that was short of the essay minimum that the magazine wanted, and he would take another topic and he would find a way to mash them together. Mm. So he was confessing that, that, yeah. that that's what he used to do. Well, hey, I think we're going to have to agree to disagree about Gladwell because I find him to be almost unreadable as far <laughs> as uh, just his uh, pseudoscience, the way he manipulates uh, yeah. the, the social sciences. And so you don't think he's turned the corner from his earlier days? No, I think he's kind of a fraud. I think he's getting worse. <laughs> <laughs> but and speaking of takedowns and and criticism before we go here with Orwell we should probably talk about any negatives. I mean he he there's times where he seems a little mean to women uh mm. which is unfortunate. He's got some unfortunate anti-semitism in his more in his private papers I think than in his actual works. Yeah. Christopher Hitchens says that Orwell seems to have outgrown his anti-semitism. I'm not sure if he's right about that, but he wasn't as ugly about it in his writing and he seems to have he's honest enough and self-critical enough that he seems to have recognized that prejudice against Jews was wrong. And he recognized that it wasn't something he himself had fully overcome. So he, he saw it as a weakness, and he saw it as a weakness that he held. But it's still, there's some letters, I think, later in his life that are kind of unfortunate. And he was kind of homophobic, and, and there was something about he spied on some of his friends, or he turned in some of his friends at one point to uh, to, to the government. You know, like he, he put some names on a list or something of, well, here are the agitators you have to worry about or something like that so all of our heroes have their flaws i guess and he had a few yeah i mean we're not perfect (laughs) (laughs) okay on that note uh let's leave things there mike the imperfect mike uh thank you for joining me on the imperfect show thanks jack Okay, that's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. My thanks to Mike Palindrome for helping us out. George Orwell. What a man. What a writer. We have a good show coming up on Thursday. The final installment in this month's Edgar Allan Poe Thursday theme, The Cask of Amontillado. Oh boy, I love that story. I hope you will love it too. You can read it in advance if you'd like, or you can just wait and listen. We will read it for you here. Next month is going to be a new Thursday theme. I think you will enjoy that one. It's really a fun idea. So sign up. Join us on Instagram or Twitter or Facebook. Subscribe to the show. And we will enter into November together. We're plowing forward. The calendar pages are flying off the spindle. Just like the leaves flying off the trees and the witches flying through the sky. It's that kind of a month. My favorite. What? You don't believe in witches? Well, okay. Ghosts, then. We are a part of Lit Hub Radio and The Podglomerate, www.thepodglomerate.com. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.
Podglomerate, a sonic universe.